G'day mate, 40 here. What does the phrase mother hunger do for you? It makes me just want to curl up in, in a ball and cry. I, I just heard about that phrase for the first time this morning. Mother hunger. Oof. So underlying many of our addictions is just this mother hunger. So let's uh, tune in to Tucker. Be back later. So Tucker, take it away, sir. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight, a year and a half after January 6th, the date much in the news right now. It's interesting that even the most basic questions about what actually happened that day remain mysteriously unanswered. First and most obviously, if you've seen the tape, why did law enforcement open the doors of the building and let protesters walk right into the Capitol? That's bizarre behavior, no matter what they say. So why did it protesters happen? Walk and then once it did happen, why did authorities lie to the country for months and tell us that Officer Brian Sicknick had been murdered by the mob when, in fact, the medical examiner determined that he died of a stroke hours later? Just tonight on CBS News, we were informed just a moment ago, as Nora O'Donnell stared on like it was true, that five police officers were murdered by the mob on January 6th. Really? We know of one killing on January 6th, and that killing was committed by Officer Michael Byrd, a Capitol Hill police officer with a confirmed record of highly reckless behavior with firearms. And yet, for some reason, he was allowed to shoot an unarmed, non-threatening woman in the neck. Why was he allowed to do that? What was the justification? No one's ever told us. Why is that? And by the way, just how many FBI agents and DOJ informants were active in the crowd on January 6th? And what exactly were they doing there? Why can't we know the answer to that question? Seriously. And why did Kamala Harris lie about where she was on January 6th? And why there's still no leads on those two attempted pipe bombings on Capitol Hill? Remember those? There are massive amounts of physical evidence, but the FBI apparently has gotten nowhere. How come? And so on. So there is still, once again, a remarkable amount that we don't know about what happened that day, despite the fact they tell us it was the largest FBI investigation in American history. That's very strange. We'll address it all in some detail on tomorrow's show. But tonight we want to get to the most basic question of all that you never hear asked. And it's this. Why did so many Trump voters show up at the Capitol in the first place? Somehow no one's ever really explained that. For a year and a half, Democrats have searched for a smoking gun that would prove some sort of pre-planned conspiracy to storm the Capitol. They haven't found that because there wasn't a pre-planned conspiracy. So instead, they've told us that the crowd converged on the Capitol that day because their orange cult leader commanded them to. Now, Trump did encourage a protest that day. That is true. But it's not a real explanation for what happened next. The people you saw outside the Capitol on January 6th were not brainwashed robots mindlessly following their leader. Whatever you think of them, they weren't sociology students from Wesleyan telling you the straight face there are 400 genders because their professors told them so. No, they were just the opposite. These were mostly sober middle-class people, older for the most part, small business owners from smallish towns far from the fashionable coasts. They're mostly passionately patriotic Americans, the kind who believe in the Bill of Rights and know what it says. These are people who genuinely love America, far more than, say, Chuck Schumer loves America. So why were they there? Why'd they go to the Capitol? Well, because, again, unlike Chuck Schumer, they actually believed in democracy and they believed their democracy had been taken from them. They were convinced that the presidential election was unfair, which it certainly was. Some of them believed the election had been rigged. We'll let others debate whether that's true, 
But the fact is, many that day believed it was true. And that itself is a huge problem for all of us going forward. The fact that large numbers of Americans believe democracy isn't real may itself be the biggest threat to our democracy. Because in order for our system to work, the population has to believe that it works. In other words, that our elections are fair and transparent and therefore legitimate. You can't just censor or arrest people for thinking the system is rigged. You have to show them the system isn't rigged. That is your baseline obligation if you lead the country. And yet the Biden administration, amazingly, is doing just the opposite. After screaming at the rest of us for questioning elections, that's immoral, they said, Joe Biden himself has begun to do just that. Here's Biden in January. Speaking of voting rights legislation, if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. You were asked whether or not you believed that we would have free and fair elections in 2022 if some of these state legislatures reformed their voting protocols. You said that it depends. Uh, do you do you think that they would in any way be illegitimate? Oh, yeah, I think it easily could be, be illegitimate. Huh? So 2020 was the most secure election in American history. They tell us that endlessly. And you're a nut, probably a criminal, if you say otherwise. And they say that because Biden won. He got, what do they say, 81 million votes. But things are different now because the Democratic Party understands it will be severely punished. It will be spanked at the polls five months from now. So because they know what the outcome is going to be, Joe Biden is now telling us that that election could, quote, easily be illegitimate. Illegitimate? How would it be illegitimate? Well, if states required voter IDs at the polls to stop voter fraud, that would be racism, it would be the new Jim Crow. Remember that? Then when primary elections in Georgia, the state most debated, actually took place, those supposedly racist voting laws led to what? A 200% increase in early voter turnout. Well, how'd that happen? Well, no one in the Democratic Party explained or even acknowledged that it did happen. Instead, they got back to work thinking of new ways to destroy the public's confidence in this upcoming election, the one they are almost certain to lose. In the state of Michigan, a political activist called Jocelyn Benson, now the Secretary of State, a former employee of the Southern Poverty Law Center, by the way, just accused other secretaries of state of trying to rig the election by spreading, quote, disinformation. Watch. The very threat of potential secretaries of state using these increasingly high profile positions as a bully pulpit to spread misinformation and lies, thereby causing citizens to disengage and lose faith in their democracy, is one of the most dangerous and pernicious ways in which this office can be misused. We facilitated a meeting with law enforcement officials throughout the state, the attorney general's office and local election officials in our state to build connectivity so that we can preemptively prepare for anything. And it's a big job of what we have to do in, the, in this moment. And if you don't have a secretary of state leading in that way, uh, you can instead open the door for all the pernicious attempts to undermine our democracy. OK, so first of all, people who don't blink enough ought to make you nervous. People who recite pre-masticated chunks of language handed to them by the DNC ought to be dismissed because they're not thinking for themselves. They're repeating propaganda. 
But secretaries of state who do that should be feared because secretaries of state are responsible for certifying elections. So if you were a secretary of state who wanted to restore the public's trust in election results, you'd probably do your best not to sound like a low IQ MSNBC weekend host on MSNBC. Instead, you try to come off as competent and sane. But Jocelyn Benson is deliberately doing the opposite. Why is she doing that? Why is she trying to shake your faith in the coming elections? You've got to wonder. And of course, Jocelyn Benson's concerns about election integrity are strangely selective or maybe not so strange. She never mentioned, for example, a major and supposedly unintentional screw up by the Census Bureau that just took place. You probably haven't read about the census just acknowledged that it dramatically miscounted the population of 14 states. And you may not be surprised to learn that most of the overcounted states were controlled by Democrats, while the undercounted states were heavily Republican. Why does this matter? Because the census determines congressional apportionment. So the mistakes the census just made could give Democrats control of the Congress. Therefore, Democrats aren't bothered by it. That's not a crisis. Democrats also aren't very interested in making sure that votes are counted quickly. Counting votes quickly, like delivering justice quickly and certainly, may be the single fastest way and most important way to restore the public's faith in the institution, in this case, in elections. So Pennsylvania has held a primary election and it took weeks to get the answer. France just held a national election and announced the winner within a few hours using paper ballots. Again, the same day. And in Pennsylvania, a primary took weeks to decide. So what's the difference? Well, in France, there's virtually no voting by mail. There's no earlier absentee voting either. Ballots are hand counted. Our system is obviously much slower and critically far more susceptible to voter fraud. Why? Because Democrats like it that way. They want you to distrust this fall's election results. And that's why they're going on television to warn you that white supremacists, a term they never define because its power lies in its ambiguity, but somehow white supremacists are going to hunt down election officials and, quote, attack the election. Watch this. We all should be concerned about the midterms being harmed, and all public officials should be concerned about their own safety, I fear. Uh, Jonathan Martin, our friend who wrote uh, This Shall Not Pass, makes that clear in his book that this is something that is a continuing part of American government, American politics. The, the big lie continues, the fealty yeah. to Trump continues, and the encouragement to the white supremacist and the terrorists to, to be involved continues. White supremacists and the terrorists, terms they never define. The most powerful words in the English language, by the way, words they use to suppress the vote and terrify you. But Steve Cohen is telling you it's the white supremacists you have to worry about. And by that, he means anyone who disagrees with him in any way. What you don't have to worry about is BLM, the Democratic militia who torched courthouses or shot people in the street, or the people who show up at the homes of Supreme Court justices with guns. None of that is a threat to democracy because all of that, in the end, helps the Democratic Party. Very few people say any of this out loud. One of the very few who's been brave enough to do that is, of all things, an NFL defensive coordinator called Jack Del Rio. He was attacked relentlessly for pointing this out. Here's what he said in response. I think we all as Americans have the right to express ourselves, especially if you're being respectful. I'm being respectful. I just asked a simple question, really. Did I? Let's get right down to it. What did I ask? A simple question. Why are we not looking into those things? If we're going to talk about it. Why are we not looking into those things? 
because it's kind of hard for me to say I can realistically look at it. I see the images on TV. People's livelihoods are being destroyed. Businesses are being burned down. No problem. And then we have a dust up at the Capitol. Well, there's no, nothing burned down. And we're not going to talk about We're going to make that a major deal. I just think it's got two standards. And if we apply the same standard and we're going to be reasonable with each other, let's have a discussion. That's all it was. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately what matters long term for all of us is that people believe our system is real, that democracy is not a charade, that the outcome is not predetermined, that everything in this country is not controlled by a small group of people, billionaires, and the people who work for them in Washington, that everybody has a voice, that we're all equal in that all citizens have an equal chance to choose their leaders. That's the core promise of democracy and people no longer believe it. So the question is, can we now with the current rules in place have faith in November's elections? That really matters, not just because the outcome in November matters, but because the system itself matters more than anything. Armit Dillon is the chairwoman of the Republican National Lawyers Association. She's very closely at this question. And she joins us tonight. I mean, thanks so much for coming on. So it's, it's pretty clear Democrats want to all of a sudden undermine the public's faith in elections. It's pretty low. It's partisan. But the deeper question is, can we actually trust the outcome of these elections with the system that we have in place? So I don't know about you, but I kind of overdid it with my stretchy bands last night on the show. I was just so carried away. I had so much no fap energy. I was just so inspired by Leah Greenfeld's talks uh, on nationalism that I went a little too far with my stretchy band. And now a little sore in the shoulders. The like, What are these muscles here? A little sore around here. So I have these routines to try to, you know, locate that unnecessary tension and, and to release it. Uh, to stretch, to to release. And so I take 90 minutes, two hours, pretty much every morning. On weekends, I often take three hours. Right? Just kind of limbering up, getting getting ready for the day ahead, doing my, doing my exercises, doing my strain, counter-strain procedures, right? doing, doing positional release. And as I do that, I like to listen to something edifying. I don't like to start my day with the news, I, I want to start my day with something uplifting, something edifying, something that will enable me to, you know, rise above my brutish animal desires, right? I, I want to be a better man than I was yesterday. I mean, gosh, the, the things I did yesterday, the people I buried yesterday, I don't even want to think about that. I just wasn't spiritually aligned yesterday. Gosh, I even did a show. Like, what do you do with a client who won't stop ejaculating? I mean, how did... How did a, a great moral figure such as myself like dive into the to the gutter to do such a show? It's not really who I am. I'm a very respectable man. And, and just reading about Deshaun Watson and, and how he was patronizing unlicensed massage therapists and urging them to get up in there. I mean, bro, this is this is no way for for a moral leader to behave and yeah, I know he used the rhetoric that he was out there supporting black woman businesses, but I mean, come on, but how did I get caught doing a whole show on ejaculating clients? So I need to get more spiritually aligned this morning, get get my day off right. The morning's the rudder of the day, bro. So how do you get your day 
you know, off right. Well, I think it's important to start with the Center for Healthy Sex. So they're located in uh, Pico Boulevard and uh, just so much great content. I mean, there's porn addiction, dysfunction, and the diagnostic debate. And I love these Mirror of Intimacy webinars by the director and founder of the Institute, Alex Katahakis. So she's one on emotion, one on actions. Now, I haven't haven't looked at the video eroticism, the secret source to a well-lived life. I'm kind of afraid to look at that one. I didn't look at the one on compulsive sex in the LGBTQIA plus population. I don't know what the IA is. I haven't yet investigated cultivating healthy connection with song. With the song tapestry method, haven't gone there yet. I'm looking forward to diving into Mirror of Intimacy webinar with Alex Katahakis on reciprocity and uh, bodyfulness, uniting our bodies and our right to receive pleasure with Rachel Allen. I I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I'm trying to stay no fap. So I may have to, to wait, wait a while for that one. But what happened was I, I was just looking at these these this smorgasbord of like healthy i mean this is a lot of really good stuff here I'm not saying everything is good stuff for you depending on your your level of recovery but most of the the, the videos on this side i felt very helpful and then i just stumbled upon healing mother hunger and attachment injury and as soon as i heard the phrase mother hunger i just like i just started choking up I mean, mother hunger and i thought I, I can't be choking up i need to you know release and you know, get in touch with my unnecessary muscular tension so, so that I can free up. But let's, let's learn about healing. I was a little bit um, out of hunger. my comfort zone talking about something that seemed intergenerational, something that seemed inherited, something about mothering that was, that was causing a deficit in our bonding that was then later impacting us. So I used the word mother hunger in that book and I got a lot of crap from therapists, but not from Alex. So anyway, Four years later, though, believe it or not, Ready to Heal sells out. They want me to write another book. I said, only if I can write a whole chapter on Mother Hunger. Well, I had got enough interest. That chapter in Mother Hunger is what then changed my whole practice. People came to see me just to work through, identify, and heal Mother Hunger. I never wanted to write another book, but this is it. And yes, I did write this book for daughters. However, Mother Hunger applies to um, both men and women. And I'll be speaking to why and how and what the differences might be. But I won't go into a whole lot of that as we are all so unique in how we identify on a spectrum of gender. And regardless, as humans, we all have the same needs for a mother. So I've been treating mother hunger. Now, now press one if, if the, the phrase mother hunger, if it evokes pain in you. Like press one if it, it resonates with you. And press two if mother hunger leaves you cold. Looking at the chat. Uh, massage therapist your career cousin 40 as an alexander technique teacher so you feel like he's almost doing it to you it's personal You're climaxing clients not very cool bread and cheddar almost toasted said glib medley ready to talk mums so come on how many other people have mother hunger black pigeon speaks is going live bro i'm talking about mother hunger and you're all up in black pigeon speaks 
This woman should have started. This woman is a mother, and she is the author of the book Healing Mother Hunger. For years, years, even designed a whole new treatment protocol. But that's all on my website, so I won't bore you with that. But writing about mother hunger is a whole different thing. I really never wanted to write this book. Um, I knew what it was going to take, but I'm so glad I've done it now. It's helping people, and I'm so excited about that. Um, but to write it, I first had to figure out how do we define mothering? What is it that I've been treating? I know I've been treating a deficit in mothering, but what have I been doing exactly? How would I quantify it? How would I operationalize what a mother does? So I started with going to the dictionary and looked up what Webster's definition of mothering is. And here's what I got. To mother is to care for someone as a mother would. Okay. That was. So I tend to exhaust people with, with my yen and, and yearning for for mothering. Uh, not very manly and masculine of me, but I know many a weekend the, the girlfriend would leave just like absolutely wiped out. You know, I've been, God forbid, I've been hammering her like a daddy and sucking from her like, like a mother. Uh, I'm sure I've gotten that, that all wrong, but they, they just leave absolutely exhausted because I was just so you know, emotionally and physically needy. And I know that I've gone through much of my life yearning for a f substitute father figures. Like I've often resonated, you know, more with my friends' fathers than than even even my friends. But when I hear that phrase "mother hunger," it makes me realize that I've gone through my life with just as much hunger, mother hunger, as father hunger. I mean, I just want to choke up when I hear that phrase "mother hunger." I mean, if you're watching this show you're hungry to attach, right? You very likely have mother hunger. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here, right? Mother hunger results in the insecure attachment style. So you've heard the, you've heard the song, Baby Come Back, but what about Mummy Come Back? Any kind of fool could see there was something in everything about you. Mummy Come Back, you can blame it all on me. I was wrong and I just can't live without you. So... My mother died when I was three, but she left me a book. She, she published this book when I was one, Fireside Stories by Gwen M. Ford. So I think she died just after her 40th birthday. So let's have a look at mom. So there's my dear old mom. There's my dad and mom. Okay, so Fireside Stories, Won Ping the Unwanted, The Mysterious Name, How Antonio Lost a Leg, The Leopard Runs Away. So it's a book of children's stories. So I, I would read this book and, and try to figure out, like, what, what was the message that my mother was trying to give to me in this book? Slave traded to minister. A Bible multiplies. Elmer the Ugly. The bird God sent, fire in the forest, the secret gift, a boy like you. And uh, it, it's even illustrated. I mean, this, this book has it all. And so I, I'd pour over this book kind of looking for, for the message, the bird God sent. And I finally figured it out. The message that my mother was leaving for me in this book was that she wanted me to be a good Christian. 
But if you've got mother hunger, you likely have insecure attachment and then you likely have multiple addictions. So perhaps my core addiction is mother hunger. And then on top of that, I've got maladaptive daydreaming. I've got sex addiction, porn addiction, love addiction, uh, occasionally some dating addiction, gambling addiction, uh, some Al-Anon going, going on, all right? So um, we talk about race and politics and culture and religion, but it's probably all just a distraction from our mother hunger. So like, why not dive deep into our mother hunger? Why not go into the core thing that gives birth to our multiple addictions? what's what's you know what's really driving us it's my first clue of no wonder we're all kind of lost about this we're all kind of even wary to talk about it it's taboo to talk about our mothers anyway but if we don't really actually know how complicated complex and all-encompassing this job is makes it really hard not only to talk about it but to treat it and to identify when something goes missing so the first thing I did to write this book is to really operationalize what's happening. Here are the three essential things a mother's job involves. Nurturing, protecting, and then guiding. Nurturing is what every human infant needs. Without nurturing, and nurturing involves feeding, holding. <laughs> and Josh Randall says, my mother is a foul whore. I do not long for her. Bro, you don't realize that you're longing for a replacement for her. Like you've been looking for a mother, like in, in all those cocktail waitresses that you've been taking to bed, right? Bro, it's natural to feel afraid as you face up to this injury. Like asking for help now can be particularly difficult. And I'm drawing on this terrific book here by Kelly McDaniel on Mother Hunger. I know that allowing someone in to support you is a vulnerable position. It's even more vulnerable than doing happy baby yoga pose where you lie on your back with your feet in the air and you pull your feet in and then you ask the massage therapist to work you know, that, that space between your, your testicles and anus. Right? Talking about mother hunger is even more vulnerable than happy baby yoga pose, right? So let's just say that you are ready for guidance here. Let's just say you're ready to start healing your, your mother hunger. Well, the power imbalance between you and a helping professional such as myself, I'm an Alexander Technique teacher, reminds you you're, you're unconscious of this fear you have that if someone really knows you, they can manipulate you and control you. So I say therapist and you hear the rapist. And, and healing mother hunger, it's got a rhythm all its own, right? Heartbreak may well flare up whenever the wound is touched. It may be a familiar song, maybe a particular smell, maybe a holiday, right? It, it, it may just be a straight thought. Like who knows what's gonna trigger your, your mother hunger. That may just come along and and that made sure. You never know what's going to trigger your mother hunger. Whoa. 
I'm at the point where I'm ready to put these police in the fucking grave. Whoa, disavow. I'm at the point where I want to burn the fucking White House down. Whoa. I want to take it to the city. I mean, you never know what's going to trigger your, your, your mother hunger. It could be a glance. It could be a song. It could be. It could be a speech. Maybe, maybe Lady Marga. Maybe Lady Marga will, will be the, the mother figure that you need. Okay, you never know what's going to trigger your, your mother hunger. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much to Lady Lady Marga. M-A-G-A. All right. So mother hunger, it, it can flare up any time whenever the wound is touched by a familiar song, a particular smell, a holiday, a straight thought. And so when it does, ask yourself, what hurts? Are you longing for affection? Are you feeling scared? Do you feel lost? So mother hunger exists on a spectrum, and it refers to the essential maternal elements that you may be missing. And there's no magical formula for healing mother hunger. But we're here to identify how you feel so that we can start, right? So we're here to identify your primary missing maternal needs. You crave affection and quality time from one special someone. Then you got mother hunger. You need more nurturing. Are you routinely anxious and afraid? Yes, I'll say yes. You need more protection. Do you feel uninspired or lost? You need guidance. Do you have apology ache? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives 
my piece of shit, you little fucking crusty ass bitch! Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until Black Lives Matter! Until Black Lives Matter, no life matters! Lady Maga is not quite a, a lady. Do I recall that correctly? God forbid, God forbid. I mean, just because she has male genitalia doesn't mean that she's not a lady, bro. All right. Are you ready to understand your disenfranchised grief? Are you ready to discover the benefits of having a celestial mother? All right. So she recommends therapy. All right. How do you replace loss maternal nurturance? Right. If you're not used to being nurtured, I mean, when I was a kid, I would just like revolt when when some attractive woman touched me because I, I longed for it so much that I made myself a jerk. I remember I had this very beautiful teacher and that when she would touch my shoulders, I'd go because it was what I wanted most in the world. She, she wore sunglasses. She had blonde, curly hair. She was so hot. Damn. I mean, gosh. But, but when she touched me, I, I jumped because it was what I wanted most. I remember a sixth grade trip to Albion and like I was provoking the girls. And so they started kissing me and I'd like protest. Oh, yuck, yuck, yuck. So if you're not used to being nurtured, press one if you aren't used to being nurtured. It can feel strange when you begin caring for yourself in healthy ways. You might feel uneasy, annoyed or disgusted. I want you to know this is normal. So here are some excellent ways to help you replace the missing maternal element of nurturing. You can soak in a tub or a saltwater tank, right? Be like Elliot Blatt. The water is like a human hug. Think about how much better Elliot Blatt is doing these days since he's been going for, for a good old soak. Touching, talking, cooing, cradling, tending, attuning, all those things that as little mammals, we're born thinking we're going to have. We're wired for it. That is nurturing. You all know the studies that say that when babies aren't held, they don't thrive. And we know the studies from the orphanages in Romania where babies did die. They were given food, they were given shelter, but they weren't held and they didn't survive. So nurturing is essential and it's been sadly underestimated. And we'll get more to that. The next thing that's almost just as essential is protection. Little babies need to be protected. They need protection from aggressive siblings, insensitive partners, um, the weather, disease, um, loud noises. They need protection from the world. And then even as we grow, given the way that our world is changing and the internet through phones comes into our home and robs us, robs our children of innocence, um, parental protection is becoming more and more important. Okay, so I, I can't be a mother figure to you, but let's get back to this lady's book. Okay, how do we replace lost maternal nurturance? So, so soak in a tub, the isolation tank, like, like Elliot Blatt. Uh, seek regular body work that is trauma sensitive. I want you to know that my Alexander Technique practice is trauma sensitive. But I'm not going to get right up in there. And, and if you even start doing happy baby yoga pose, I'm not going to be very happy as your Alexander Technique professional. All right. You can practice restorative yoga to ease emotional wounds stuck in your body. So if you have emotional wounds stuck in your body, whereabouts are they? Have you tried a gravity blanket when you go to bed or just rest on the couch and make you feel nurtured? 
You can listen to a mindful podcast like this one. You can uh, walk in nature where silence can, can find you. Yeah, that, that sounds healing. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit. Okay. Uh, walk in nature where silence can find you. Light your favorite scented candle. So I, I've got these oils and, and scents that, that I like to mix up with the water and the humidifier. But when I do that, when I do that, I start getting these really negative readings. I, I spent $106 before tax on this, this air quality uh, measurement gizmo. So I've got really good air quality. It's 77 degrees in here right now, 46% humidity. I mean, look look at how good my air quality is. All right, yeah, absolutely worth it for, for peace of mind, just knowing I've got the high quality air quality. Okay, light your favorite scented candle, drink non-caffeinated herbal tea at night, take naps when possible. Poss yeah, taking naps, that feels very nurturing. Curl up with something soft like a favorite pillow or pet. Sleep when you can, but if sleeping is a way to avoid things, try other ways to nurture yourself. You wouldn't let a child sleep all day. So there are 21 days to detox and connect with yourself. So press three if you are ready to detox and connect with yourself. And then finally, there's guidance. Everyone wants a mother they admire. Everyone wants a mother that inspires them. For sons and daughters, this is where it might be different. Sons right around adolescence may start to turn to the world of men to find guidance, to find men who inspire them, guide them. And women don't have to do that. Girls can keep their gaze on their mothers. We want her to bring us into the world of women. We want her to teach us, inspire us just by who she is and by example, not by what she's saying. So these are the three essential elements. So a clinical term for mother hunger would be if one of those goes missing, let's say there's not enough nurturing, maybe there's protection, maybe there's some guidance, but not enough nurturing, that may create some insecure attachment. Maybe there's no protection. Okay, we had some election results and the liberal San Francisco DA was uh, turned out. Let's get so some. if you're looking for reassurance that democracy can work, look to San Francisco. Last night, 60% of the city's voters decided to oust Chesa Boudin. That is the district attorney who refused to enforce the law in San Francisco and turned our prettiest city into a pretty hellish place. For example, Boudin is one of the reasons that people feel free to defecate on the street. Does that mean that as a district attorney, you can't do anything about human feces on the street? Sorry to say... The best I can do about it is to use whatever platform I have here in front of all of you on Twitter to demand more public toilets. I think public toilets are a great solution to that problem. I, I'll tell you what's not a good solution is having police who could be investigating unsolved rapes and murders get distracted with paperwork to give citations to people who don't have anywhere to use the toilet in private. Oh, so there's human feces on the sidewalk, but it's your fault for not building more public toilets. How about no crapping on the sidewalk? How's that sound? And that is the message, actually, that San Francisco voters sent yesterday. And the reason they were able to 
traces back to a man called David Sachs. He's one of the people who funded this recall election. He's the co-founder of Kraft Ventures, where he's a partner. He's also the former CEO of PayPal. And we're happy to have him join us tonight to celebrate the triumph of democracy in his city, San Francisco. Congratulations. It, uh, were you surprised by the margins here? They seemed huge, given the city. Yeah, th thank you, Tucker. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, you know, Boudin tried to uh, portray this recall as a Republican recall. He called it Trumpist. Uh, but, you know, only 7% of San Francisco uh, voters are registered Republicans. It's a 90% Democrat city. And so the 60% uh, majority shows you that mainstream Democrats and moderates throughout the city rejected this sort of radical progressive agenda. And so I think what you're seeing now is some boundary lines are being drawn inside the Democratic Party where average Democratic voters are starting to push back against the activists and the woke billionaires, the donor class and the unions and the special interests who are trying to push a agenda that's out of step even with the liberal citizens of San Francisco. Well, exactly. And the idea that this is some sort of Trumpist effort, you merely, whatever your politics are, stepped in and gave voters the opportunity to weigh in because it, it is an emergency what's happening in your city, I think it's fair to say. So you just allowed democracy to take place. How could anyone complain about that? Right. And, and you know, it wasn't just me. There were many other uh, organizations and individuals who contributed who, uh, you know, are, are, are registered Democrats. And so it was yes. uh, very much a broad-based effort of uh, people in San Francisco rejecting this sort of radical decarcerationist agenda where Chase Boudin had this idea that he could make San Francisco safer by emptying out the jails and and releasing or decreasing the prison population as much as possible. They call it uh, decarcerationism. Uh, obviously, it backfired massively, and we're all living with the results of that now in San Francisco. And, you know, just San Franciscans from all walks of life have basically rejected that agenda. Uh, but, you know, like I said, the sort of activist wing of the Democratic Party is still deeply invested in it, and it's going to take a lot more than one election to get them to reject it. And uh, so, you know, this sort of playbook here is going to have to be replicated across the country. Really? So you honestly don't, th and you follow this closely, mm -hmm. if they lose in San Francisco, that's not a clear enough message for them? Well, you know, I think you've got the, these sort of decarceral prosecutors who've been elected in L.A. and Chicago, New York City, Austin, yeah. uh, Philadelphia. Uh, you know, they're backed by very deep-pocketed sort of woke billionaires, Soros, Reed Hastings, and so forth. They're not going to change their minds just based on one election. So they may change their messaging. But I don't think they're going to change their minds. It's going to take, you know, effort uh, in many of these cities uh, to, to try and see, to try and make a change. Yeah, it's going to take democracy. Amen. David Sachs, congratulations. You, you really have helped make that city better. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Tucker. But let's get down to brass tax, man. This is all driven by mother hunger. 21 days to detox and connect with yourself. Right? For three weeks, feed yourself as you would a young child. Minimize the sugar, caffeine, and processed foods. Write down your thoughts and feelings as you notice them. Yeah, I, I often do this. I just start writing down everything I'm thinking and feeling. This is one of the hardest healing tasks, but it is essential. Make sleep a priority. So I got this new nose mask for my CPAP, and it's comfortable. I, I can just leave my CPAP on all night. So I'm getting good sleep at night. Then I'm taking my beef organs to start the day and uh, listening to some videos from the Center for Healthy Sex. Right, there are different ways that you can pray to God. Make sleep a priority. Apps like Calm or Insight Timer are helpful for sleepless nights. Limit your exposure to social media. So limit your exposure to rage porn. 
Uh, check email only when necessary. Practice spending time alone without a romantic partner, family member, or friend to entertain, comfort, or distract you. Try practicing solitude in a conscious, present way. Are you practicing solitude in a conscious, present way and staying no fap? Right. Put your devices away at night. Well, I, I let my phone just play audible books all night. If you use your device to listen to, to sleep or meditate, set it to airplane mode or do not disturb. Right. If all of this seems impossible and you keep reaching for your mother only to find yourself hurt and disappointed again, consider seeking the help of a licensed therapist. A support group can be helpful if you have addictive habits. So there are support groups like Overeaters Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics, and Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. If you weren't protected as a child, anxiety feels normal. Earning a secure attachment means making your life as safe as possible so that you can reset your baseline. Your body may have no idea what relaxation feels like because you've been alert and ready for danger most of your life. So avoid movies and shows with violence. Turn off the news. Listen to your intuition if someone or something feels off. Calm your overactive amygdala with relaxation techniques. Move your body gently. Exercise motivates a sleepy, disassociated nervous system. Spend time with safe people. Listen to educational podcasts about attachment. Therapist Uncensored is a good one. Conscious, healthy dissociation soothes fear. It's helpful to find ways to turn off your fear brain so that your body can relax. Happy movies help. I love underdog sports stories. I don't think I've ever seen an underdog sports movie that I didn't like. How do we replace lost maternal guidance? So we grew up just breathing in our parental expectations. We, we created a life that reflects our parents' values instead of our own. We've taken on their hopes and dreams taken on their contradictory and confusing messages. So what, what can we do? Apology ache. Many of us are experts at acting like it's no big deal when someone hurts your feelings. Yeah, that's pretty much how I've lived my life. We swallow pain to avoid conflict. Yep, guilty as charged. I mean, Laponius, he said some really hurtful things over the years, and I just swallow my pain. Just swallow my pain to avoid conflict with Laponius. Some of us seek revenge when someone hurts us. We want them to feel as badly as we do. Right? Most of us learn these strategies very young because when mom hurt our feelings, she didn't apologize. We became masters at pretending we were okay when we didn't feel okay. I remember when I'd trip and fall and I'd skin my knees. My dad would pick me up and, and tell everyone else who was concerned, oh, he's fine, he's okay. Didn't really enjoy my father speaking up for me. Guys, I'm not getting, I'm not getting any feedback on on mother hunger. Maybe he just picked a bad day to stop smoking bath salts. When I see, look up forward, I see Uncle Wally. All right, look, I know under that bravado, bro, you're, you're afflicted with apology ache. Right, you've got this longing for the for Uncle Wally to come and tell you that you know I'm sorry. You're waiting for an apology. You're hoping your pain will stop when Uncle Wally recognizes that what he did to your backside was wrong. But lots of people don't acknowledge their hurtful behavior, and they don't apologize for it either. 
they're not sure how to apologize or they feel too much shame or they simply can't empathize. So the legacy of an unapologetic mother or unapologetic Uncle Wally is incredibly hurtful. You might not even recognize a sincere apology from someone because you've never experienced one in your formative years. An apology is more than just the words, I'm sorry, though it's a good start. So an apology is not an excuse. An apology is not a denial. Someone tries to talk you out of your reality. That's not an apology. That's a way to avoid feeling remorse. Where it's like, was it really that bad or are you being too sensitive? That just adds insult to your injury. Right? This type of apology asks you to ignore how you feel. Right? This is a safe space where you don't have to ignore how you feel. It just adds shame to the hurt. Shaming, right? Shaming efforts hide behind false apologies, such as when someone suggests, I'm sorry you feel that way, as if your feelings just happened in a vacuum. Right? So you were hurt before, now you're hurt and you're mad. Apologies should not be manipulative. Right? You don't want to hear someone saying, oh, I'm such a mess, I can't help it when I sleep with your best friends. That's not an apology. And then we should talk about disenfranchised grief. When a parent loses a child, friends and family circle the wagons in support. Suffering needs soothing, heartbreak needs belonging. Without public validation of our grief, our grieving stalls. Right? Do you have disenfranchised grief? Right? Have you experienced loss that cannot be openly acknowledged? Like the grief that comes from terminating an affair or going, you know, broke back mountain one summer. So normal grief tells us that grieving happens in predictable stages that end with resolution, but abnormal grief doesn't move through predictable stages. It stays stuck in patterns of mourning. Right? It stays stuck in protest, like arguing or demanding an angry outburst. I mean, this to me sounds like mother hunger. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking cussy ass bitch! Wow. Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? Well, I'm healing a lot of pain and shame behind these words. I love life. Those of you who think that this rampage is a good thing. Wow. You love so death. much anger here. You wanna die. You want people like you to die. You want some huge burning wow. spectacle because inside your insides are like a big burning. Gosh, fire. I'm just going so off here. You love death. I love life. That's the difference between us. You want to destroy. You want to tear down. You want to shit all over places that you disagree with. You want to defecate. You want to vomit. You want to go out in blazing glory. You want to break the law. You want people to ruin their lives. Because at core, you love death. I love life. I love the rule of law. You want to destroy the law. You want to shed all over this country. I want to protect and clean up this country. That's the difference between us. You want to take a shit on the United States of America. At your core, that's who you are. That's what you want to do. You are full of shit. You want to take a shit on this country. You love death. You glorify death. Five people died. Five innocent people died from this rampage, and you think it's great? What kind of person thinks the death of five innocent people is a good thing? A person who is insanely in love with death. Wow.
Where did that come from? In a small but important triumph of democracy, Chesa Boudin was bounced out of his job last night in a referendum, but there are more district attorneys like him across the country, all backed by Soros, of course. One of them is called Jason Williams. He's the DA in New Orleans. Under Williams, the homicides in the city were up 80% last year. So far this year, they're up 46%. Here's a local news report. From 4 p.m. Friday to 4 a.m. Sunday, 12 people were shot in seven different incidents, resulting in three people being killed. Suspects pulled up in a truck, got out, and began firing at a group of people, hitting three of them. One victim, a 22-year-old male, was pronounced dead at the hospital. Less than a mile away, around 3 a.m., police say a 16-year-old boy got into an altercation with someone in the French Quarter and was shot. Video shows mayhem in one in New Orleans neighborhood. Dozens of shots send people running. My wife and I hear assault rifle fire that seemingly was not going to end. One neighbor tells Fox 8 she thinks more than 70 rounds were fired. French Quarter used to be wild, always has been, but you could go there. Can't now. Too dangerous. How out of control is New Orleans? Well, at a time when they're telling you that they need to take your deer rifle away because some lunatic shot up a school, this is what it looks like. Dozens of people in downtown New Orleans, right near the convention center, filming themselves, waving handguns and rifles on the street. Watch this. Just parked right in the middle of the street next to the convention center in the middle of the day. So what are the New Orleans police doing about this? Well, we checked their Facebook page. We didn't see anything at all. No arrests have been made. They don't care. What have they been doing? Well, New Orleans Police Department officers were busy attending something called a drag brunch. We reached out to the NOPD. They said drag brunches are, quote, essential to their mission. They wouldn't tell us if officers were on drag queen duty during the incident you just saw in the video. Meanwhile, Democratic Party leaders have not said a word about the collapse of New Orleans. They're just glad the statues were taken down. And so they're telling you the biggest threat this country faces is something called white supremacy. And each week seems to bring new tragic incidents, increasing number committed by individuals who hold white supremacist ideologies. Congress and law enforcement can strike a balance that preserves treasured civil liberties while protecting against a rising tide of white supremacists. And the bill that I brought to the floor was required that white supremacist terrorism be restored as one of those categories. It was eliminated under President Trump. White supremacist violence is a nationwide problem. So what exactly is white supremacy? It's the most powerful phrase in the English language. You can lose your job. You can be arrested for it. So what is it? Well, they keep it ambiguous just so you'll be terrified into obeying them because you don't want to be accused of it. They never define it. It turns out, though, even if you accept the ADL's definition of white supremacist violence, the ADL is just a paid arm of the Democratic Party. But even if you believe their definition, there were all last year a total of 13 deaths in the United States due to white supremacy. That's their accounting. By comparison, there were 22,900 murders overall. What lessons should we draw from this? Victor Davis Hanson is a historian, a senior fellow and one of our favorite guests. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. What conclusions do you draw from this spectacle? Well, I think that usually in normal times, Tucker, that we don't do insane things like let people out with no bail or do not prosecute people who are arrested or let felons out of prison. But these are confined to the campus, critical race theory, critical legal theory, 
critical penal theory, but I don't know whether it was COVID or the lockdown or George Floyd or the 120 days of rioting in summer of 2020 or the, the strange 102 mail-in ballots or the Biden left-wing agenda, but these academic theories got mainstream into actual policies of defunding the police and letting criminals out of jail and et cetera, and we lost deterrence. So the criminal today says in a cost-benefit analysis, it's, it's in my interest to commit a crime because I'm not going to pay the price for it. And then we can't deal with that reality. But if, if you're talking about white supremacy, we would like to go to certain data areas to confirm that. So when we look at rare interracial crimes, which are pretty rare, African-Americans by a great number disproportionately commit them against whites versus uh, whites versus blacks. That wouldn't be possible under a white supremacist nation. Or if you look at murders and violent assaults, African-Americans in cases of murders are between 50 and 60 percent, even though they only make up 12 percent of the population, and whites are underrepresented. If you look at hate crimes, uh, African-Americans are overrepresented and whites are underrepresented. I'm not trying to justify any of this. I'm just giving you the data. But that data is toxic to these theories. So people try to suppress it or they massage it or they contextualize it. But we're never going to get to helping the people who really need the help in the inner city, the innocents, if we don't stop this crime wave. And a lot of it has to do with African-American males who feel one way or another there's no deterrent left. And as far as the white supremacy, we recall, we, we remember Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley gave us lecture after lecture about it. And so we, but one thing they didn't do, they never gave us any data. They didn't say, here's the Pentagon's data. Here's the enlisted ranks. We have an epidemic where white soldiers are committing interracial acts, acts of hostility at a greater number than Hispanics or Latinos vis-a-vis -vis other races. They never told us that. But since they wanted to dwell on race, 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 and proportional representation, which I think is very dangerous in a multiracial society, maybe whites are more violent in the sense that they're more likely to be in combat units, about double their numbers of the general population, and white males died at twice their numbers in Afghanistan and Iraq. Nobody ever talks about that. If that's what they mean by they took a gun and they went after the enemy and that makes them dangerous, I don't know uh, if that's what they intended. But... Finally, Tucker, they don't, the left doesn't have an agenda in November, so we're going to hear Roe versus Wade, we're going to hear the Electoral College is racist, filibusters, we're going to hear white supremacy, white supremacy, but, and we're never going to hear, here's what we, we can do for energy, here's what we can do for deterrence of foreign policy, here's what we can do for inflation, none of that. So this is what it's all about. It's pretty simple. If you improve people's lives, no matter what color they are, They'll vote for you. And if you don't, they won't. I don't know why they haven't figured that out. They won't. They haven't. Victor Davis yeah. Hanson. Hawley, because he just got whistleblower documents showing that is, of course, a total lie. The memos Hawley obtained show the board was created in part to monitor domestic speech, conspiracy theories about the validity and security of elections and COVID vaccines. <laughs> if you question the COVID vaccines. Right. You need to be monitored. The board was also working on a partnership with Twitter to suppress unauthorized opinions of many stripes. Josh Hawley is, of course, a senator from Missouri. He joins us tonight with these documents. Senator, thanks so much for coming in and for doing this. So this was aimed, tell me if I'm mischaracterizing this, at our population. Yeah, that's exactly right. As it turns out, Tucker, the people that the Biden administration thinks are the real threat to America, it's not the drug cartels, it's not foreign threats, it, it's you, it's the American people. Yeah. If you have questions about COVID, if you have questions about COVID masks, if you have questions about the COVID vaccine, this 
administration wanted you to be monitored. This disinformation board was set up to go after you. That's what the documents say. By the way, election integrity, same story. The documents specifically mention that they needed to be a disinformation board because some people were having questions about election integrity. Some people had questions about January 6th. Well, we couldn't have that. And this board was set up to monitor that. That was what was in their sights. And I tell you, Tucker, it, it just gives the lie to what they were saying in public. So the federal government partnering with private companies to censor Americans who criticize Pfizer is unconstitutional, isn't it? Yeah, you would sure think so. I mean, this idea that the government is going to stand up an institution that's going to monitor American speech, that's going to treat Americans' political speech, Tucker, core political speech about political issues as something that needs to be monitored, that needs to be countered. This was going to be a, a state propaganda machine. This board was supposed to push out counter-information to Americans who are raising questions, and yes, to partner with big tech. The whole idea here in the documents show this, is that the government would get together with big tech and collect information on Americans who were raising these questions. I mean, how dare you? That's the whole idea here, is that the government and big tech, these companies would partner together in this massive censorship campaign. It is truly, truly chilling. It's, it's beyond belief, and thank you for proving bureaucrat with a critical job that you have repeatedly proven unable to accomplish. Like, let's say you were the military, but you have shown that you're unable to win protracted wars against poorly armed peasant insurgencies. But you don't want to answer questions about why you failed. What do you do? You celebrate Pride Month, obviously. And that's what Marine Corps is supposed to be a picture of a helmet with rainbow-colored bullets attached to it. Now, the CIA, which is spying on you, and making Americans less safe than they would otherwise be if the CIA didn't exist, has posted this picture of a rainbow flag along with the word pride. And they added this note because it's reassuring. CIA is a proud LGBTQ+, a term, of course, no one ever defines, ally. We're committed to maintaining a safe environment for all. And so that means, <laughs> at the very least, the next drone will have a rainbow on it. Sleep easy, America. So before we go, we had a really interesting conversation with a porn star turned preacher called Josh Broom. And his description of what the industry he once worked in does to people, how it exploits them and kills them, is really pretty bracing. You can watch it on Tucker Carlson today. Here's part of it. It's literally leading to deaths. Like people are taking their life because of, like, like part of the legislation is being passed, like, People are raping people and, and putting it on the internet, and, there, and there's no checks and balances to see where it came from. Or But some people are getting rich from it. it yes. And, and that's totally and cool. And Tucker, the 30 people who are dead that were my friends that took their life because of the industry, those all of that content still online being consumed at an astronomical rate. Now, that was an interesting conversation. You can stream the entire thing tomorrow morning. Tucker Carlson today. We will be back tomorrow night, our January 6th special. We'll see you then. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tucker. Appreciate and welcome it. to Hannity. Tonight it is 9 p.m. here in New York. Our commander-in-chief, oh, he's likely fast asleep after a long trip to the West Coast. He's tired. Now, meanwhile, back in the swamp in D.C. are U.S. Supreme Court justices 
They're probably, probably likely pretty restless tonight because 24 hours ago, a man that was armed with a 9mm handgun and a knife traveled from California to Maryland to the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And that's where he planned to assassinate the Supreme Court justice and then commit suicide. Now, this lunatic who is now in police custody, thankfully, great job for the police, was reportedly upset over the leaked draft Roe versus Wade opinion. He knew exactly where Kavanaugh lived. Why? Because Democrats were publishing uh, his address and the address of other justices online. Liberals have been protesting outside of Kavanaugh's home on and off now for weeks, including another demonstration earlier tonight, only moments ago. But of course, for years, the left has, well, brutally and unfairly, they have vilified Justice Kavanaugh quite unfairly, but without any corroborating evidence, they falsely accused him, remember, let's see, of gang rape. Then they told people that he was an abusive alcoholic, a drug addict that hated all women over MSDNC. That would be NBC News. Joy Reid published a conspiracy theory that Kavanaugh was trying to ban birth control. And top Senate Democrat Chucky Schumer even th seemingly threatened Kavanaugh's life at a speech that he gave right on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. You probably remember this. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, you have released the whirlwind. You will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. Now, naturally, a few weeks ago, Schumer didn't seem to mind at all that Kavanaugh's address and other Supreme Court justices' addresses were published online, and that so-called protester showed up outside of his house. He does have young children and a family. Now, Schumer thought it was kind of hilarious. Take a look. Are you comfortable with the protests that we saw outside the homes of Supreme Court justices over the weekend? If protests are peaceful, yes. My house is, there's protests three, four times a week outside my house. That's the, uh, the American way to peacefully protest is okay. And I've been, that's my wife, sorry. Um, maybe there's a protest outside. I doubt uh, Chuck Schumer's home is uh, having protests three or four times a week. Not only did Schumer refuse to condemn this kind of intimidation, this type of harassment, but so did Biden's White House. Take a look at this. So I know that there's an outrage right now, I guess, about uh, protests that have been peaceful to date, and we certainly continue to encourage that outside of judges' homes. Some of these justices have young kids, but their neighbors are not all public figures. So would the president think about waving off activists that want to go into residential neighborhoods in Virginia and Maryland? Uh, Peter, look, I think our view here is that peaceful protest, there's a long history in the United States and the country of that. So he doesn't care if they're protesting out outside the Supreme Court or outside someone's private residence. I don't have an official U.S. government position on where people protest. Now, one blue checkmark media mob reporter took it even a step further, tweeting, quote, may these people never know a moment of peace or safety until they rot in the ground. One politician from California encouraging protesters to, quote, empty Kavanaugh's house and burn his bleep in front of him. In a statement, House Speaker 
Pelosi. She even applauded the, quote, righteous anger against Kavanaugh and called on her supporters to march and mobilize. Now, for months, she blocked a bipartisan bill bolstering security for all nine Supreme Court justices. Aren't these the same people saying insurrection every other second of the day? Now, she continues to block security for our Supreme Court justices and this bill to this very day. Uh, why, Nancy, why are you blocking what is a bipartisan bill to keep judges safe? Why didn't you call up the National Guard, by the way, now that we're talking about it, that Donald Trump... So I know in particularly in modern Orthodox Judaism, there's a big movement to protest in front of people's homes if they refuse to give their wife a get or often a Jewish divorce, or they refuse to give their wife a divorce through the particular Beit Din Jewish law court that the community wants them to go through. So often men will say, oh, I'll give my wife a get through this Beit Din, through this law court, but I won't give it through that. But if they're not giving it through the officially sanctioned Beit Din, then, then the modern Orthodox community often encourages all the major modern Orthodox rabbis in Los Angeles tell their congregants to go protest outside people's homes. I think it's heinous, absolutely heinous. I spoke out against it years ago. I strongly opposed to protesting in front of people's homes. And none of these rabbis would appreciate it if you went and protested outside their homes. But if you looked into the record very much, you could find a ton of reasons why you would feel inspired to go protest outside their homes. But for, for, for many in official Jewish circles, particularly in modern Orthodox Judaism, encouraging people to go rally and protest outside someone's home, try to ruin their life if they don't go through the bait din that you think they should be going through to deliver a, a divorce, that uh, that's definitely the way to go. Now, I think refusing to give your wife a divorce through the, through the, the Jewish ritual process is, is heinous and wrong, but I, I also think that protesting in front of people's homes is heinous and wrong. So I think what's going on with the Supreme Court justices is bad. But the worst thing is that the Democratic leaders see nothing wrong with it, that they're essentially encouraging it. Authorized days earlier uh, for you on January 6th, because I doubt that committee's ever going to ask you, because they have a predetermined outcome. And keep in mind, for the past several weeks, this country has experienced an increasing level of violence against those that oppose abortion. Look, for example, in Buffalo yesterday, one pregnancy center, it was actually firebombed. In Asheville, North Carolina, another crisis pregnancy uh, center was vandalized overnight, windows broken, graffiti that read, quote, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. We recently saw a similar attack that was in a clinic in Wisconsin, and yet Nancy Pelosi is blocking a bill that would step up security for these justices who might soon overturn Roe v. Wade, really? And just to recap, the party that claims to revere our great institutions, the Democratic Party, they first vilified, then they smeared a U.S. Supreme Court justice, then many called for violence against him. Uh, you won't know what hit you, right? And then someone, perhaps one of their lackeys inside the Supreme Court, leaked the court's abortion decision, or at least a, a draft of one, in an unprecedented effort to unleash an angry mob against so I don't play Sean Hannity almost ever on this show, but I think he was pretty good there. Interesting article in on NPR. After the leak, the Supreme Court seethes with resentment and fear behind the scenes.
This is the busiest time of year for the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices are releasing their most important cases here in the final weeks of the term. That's tradition. But nothing else about this term feels traditional after the leak of Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion in an abortion case. NPR's Nina Totenberg has been asking what's going on out of sight at the court as we wait. Hey there, Nina. Hi there, Steve. What are you learning? It's pretty ugly. Between the leak investigation and the distrust among the justices and among the clerks themselves, the place sounds like it's imploding. And I'm going to give you one example. Justice Thomas, in a speech right after the leak, seemed to say that he no longer trusts his colleagues. When you lose that trust, especially in the institution that I'm in, it changes the institution fundamentally. Uh, You begin to look over your shoulder. It's like kind of an infidelity that you can explain it, but you can't undo it. And he implied that he doesn't trust Chief Justice Roberts. The court that was together 11 years was a fabulous court. It was one you looked forward to being a part of. Those 11 years were when Chief Justice William Rehnquist was chief, and he was succeeded in 2005 by Chief Justice Roberts. We don't know what the root of this antipathy is, but we do know that Roberts infuriated some of the court's conservatives 10 years ago, talk about carrying a grudge, when he changed his mind and voted to uphold key provisions of Obamacare. Those switches, Steve, they're pretty rare, but they do happen, and in good faith. Sometimes a justice just changes his mind. But that switch so infuriated some of the court's conservatives that it leaked, obviously from the conservative side, to embarrass Roberts. So in that case, some justices' bad feelings leaked out, but now we have a leak of an actual draft opinion, which seems almost never to happen, on abortion, just about the most emotionally freighted, politically freighted topic you could imagine. And Roberts has ordered the court's own marshal to investigate who's responsible. That must have added to the bad feelings. Well, it's a mess. So to begin with, the Supreme Court marshal oversees basically all the security and administrative functions of the court, including overseeing the Supreme Court police. But she has no experience as an investigator, nor do the Supreme Court police. Their job, Steve, is to protect the justices and the building. And everybody I've talked to who does have experience as an investigator says that leak inquiries are just about the worst. In the words of several people, they're nightmares. What makes them so? Well, let me quote Glenn Fine, who conducted and supervised a lot of these investigations when he was the inspector general for the Justice Department and then the Defense Department over a decade in both Democratic and Republican administrations. Initially, he wrote, we would be told that only a few people had access to the material that had been leaked. Only a few individuals were at key meetings or worked on the key document. But he said, invariably, when we probed, the universe of people who had access expanded exponentially. And even if there was some evidence of contact with a reporter, we were usually unable to prove that the contact led to the leak. Therefore, they ended up with zilch. Now, turning to this leak, CNN has reported that the court has taken steps to, one, ask the law clerks to sign sworn affidavits, and two, to essentially dump their cell phones. What does that do to a workplace, any workplace, if the boss is doing that? Well, first of all, we don't even know what's in the affidavit. We don't know what they're actually doing. It's not clear that the clerks know. But as awful as leaking a document is, it's not a crime. Lying in an affidavit is a crime. So imagine 
if you swear under oath that you didn't do that, and it turns out that your college classmate is a reporter at Politico and you had dinner with him in April prior to the leak, well, you could be in a heap of trouble. That's so, all hypothetical. We should yeah, mention what yeah. you just said. Go on. Yeah. To- total hypothetical. So indications are that some of the law clerks are lawyering up. Not to mention, Steve, talk about potential hypocrisy. If the court can dump information from your cell phone without a warrant, well, that directly contradicts the Supreme Court's own unanimous ruling six years ago when it said that police could not search a suspected gang member's phone without a warrant after he was pulled over in a traffic stop. It sounds like the U.S. Supreme Court is not qualified, experienced, have the skills or the capability to really investigate this leak. I mean, that, that's that's what I'm getting from from this story, right? The, the court's taken steps, right, to ask clerks to sign sworn affidavits. The, the people of the Supreme Court who have been given this job to investigate the, the leak, they're not qualified. They they have no experience with this, All right. I mean, they they don't seem terribly serious about actually investigating this leak. All right, let's get back to Mother Hunger. And if that phrase means something to you, Mother Hunger, if it resonates in your soul, you may want to read up on Mother Hunger or listen to podcasts on it or read the book Mother Hunger. So I'm reading from passages from the, the book. Here's a section on disenfranchised grief, right? When you experience a loss that you cannot acknowledge. So when you have normal grief, your grief will tend to happen in predictable stages that end with resolution. Abnormal grief doesn't move through predictable stages. It often tends to stay stuck in patterns of mourning. So you may get stuck in protest, in arguing, demanding an angry outburst. You may get stuck in pining, prolonged mourning, being haunted by loss. I think I've been stuck there. So I've been stuck a lot more in pining than in protest. Despair, depression, hopelessness, and resignation experienced a lot of that, and disconnection, disassociation, frozen mourning, often an addictive process, behavior or substance steps in and the mourning process doesn't happen at all. Yeah, that uh, that resonates. So let yourself wallow. Living with mother hunger is like being trapped inside a cage of rage and longing. Sometimes grief will feel like anxiety or anger. Sometimes it will feel like sadness or despair. Allow yourself to feel these emotions. This may seem wrong. It may seem disorienting because we are wired to avoid emotional pain. Now culture expects us to just brush off emotional adversity quickly without leaving us time for grief. So wallow in sadness, wallow in grief, wallow in despair. Allow your emotions to have room and allow them to have attention. Wallowing is a powerful way to move through difficult emotions. Pushing them down doesn't work. We just get depressed. Repressing them won't work. They leak out in other ways. Denial further abandons the little girl inside of us who tucked away the emotions her mother couldn't tolerate. So wallowing may sound scary. You may wonder if negative emotions could overwhelm you. What if you never get out of bed? Avoiding negative feelings is avoiding yourself. Healing comes from facing your fear, from being present with the wounded parts of you that your mother didn't see and couldn't tolerate. So let disenfranchised feelings wash into your soul, face those pieces of yourself that you've been hiding, and have a good wallow. Take time away from work, partners, children, and tend to these feelings. Cover yourself up with a heavy blanket and curl up as if you were being embraced by a loving mother. Finding places to belong. 
heals mother hunger, right? Find a good synagogue, good church, a good yoga studio, good 12-step program. Without a sense of belongingness, we default to addictive substitutes to numb our loneliness. Now, loneliness may seem safer than risking connection. Finding a place where you have temporary relief from your own thinking is an essential piece of healing. I found a lot of joy from belonging to a dog park, even though I don't have a dog. So finding a place to belong sounds much easier than it is. You've probably tried. Sometimes a mother's behavior and a lack of remorse is so painful that it requires you to at least temporarily separate from your mother. Maybe you need a celestial mother. What would an ideal mother be like? Look for inspiration. And then EMDR, I've done that. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And there's long-term relational trauma. When the body has been a back battleground, disorganized attachment patterns are enduring, and insecurity requires more effort than the healing milder forms of mother hunger. So focus on the disorganized attachment rather than the trauma. Then we need closure. So how do we reclaim damaged dreams and goals? Think of four of your most significant achievements to date. What are you most proud of accomplishing? What are four ways that you like to express your creativity? What gives your life meaning? List four things that get you out of bed in the morning. Think of seven words to describe yourself, such as funny, pretty, resilient, creative. Think of seven things that you like to do and that give you a sense of purpose and meaning. Pick your top three descriptive words. Strong, pretty, persistent, funny, quiet, intelligent. Pick your three favorite activities. And let's put it all together. For example, I am a funny, persistent, and pretty so that I can read, cook, and knit. All right, think of this as your internal compass for life. This can provide guidance for your choices and decisions. How much of your day-to-day -day life reflects this statement? 10%, 30%, 60%. What can you do to increase this statement? The more of your life reflects who you really are, the less you need to fill the emptiness with unhealthy behaviors or with unhealthy people. He appeared in an interview with Chris White Talking about and also Michael on the Optimistic Beckley. American podcast. Well, I think China's sort of caught between two different strategies. On the one hand, China wants to back its ally, Russia, because they share a common interest in beating back the international order that um, you know, the United States and its allies play a leading role in. On the other hand, you know, China benefits a lot more from that order than Russia does. I mean, Russia is naturally a disruptor. It, 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 when it disrupts the international system, oil prices go up. And that typically has benefited Russia. For China, it's a major commodities importer. It's a major export-driven economy. And so it has to worry about the total collapse of the system. And so I, th I think you're seeing these two competing interests playing out in China, where on the one hand, China behind the scenes is basically parroting Russian propaganda, how this is all the West's fault to kind of maintain that narrative about why this existing order is pernicious. On the other hand, uh, you know, Chinese banks have been going out of their way to not blatantly violate the sanctions against Russia. You've had the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs issue multiple statements basically trying to say, look, we're going to be an honest broker here and we want peace, etc. So you see these competing interests. And I think China is trying to walk a fine line between wanting to prop Russia up, but not in such an egregiously obvious way as to invite blowback on China um, um, and, and to undermine a broader order that it still depends on in various aspects for its own continued rise. The U.S. economic and military lead over other countries, and in particular over China, 
is much larger than most people think. And then the second argument is that the United States actually has the best prospects to continue to build up its wealth and power in the coming decades than any of the other major powers. The fact, the things that drive long-term economic growth and military success, the United States just has a number of benefits that other countries don't have. So you have a big lead and the best prospects. That doesn't mean the United States doesn't confront threats from other countries. It doesn't mean that we can't screw it up. Um, but we have a very strong hand, and so we just have to focus on playing that hand well. Over at the Hoover Institute, H.R. McMaster's and Neil Ferguson were joined by Victor Davis Hansen, who talked to them about American agriculture, economics, and the Ukraine. And because of fish concerns, environmental concerns, oxygenation in the Delta, we're letting water, to the, as I speak, go out to the Pacific Ocean and not go into, uh, say, San Luis Reservoir. It's thought partly that we're in a drought. We have now since December we've been we've had some record low months as far as precipitation. We had a pretty good May, but it wasn't enough. And so what's happening now is all over the state, people are drawing water, pumping, and they're not getting any irrigation deliveries whatsoever. The California Water Project that started out as agricultural uh, for the most part is now in, almost entirely municipal. So when you go by I five and you see that aqueduct. It's going to San Jose, it's going to Santa Barbara, it's going to uh, San Luis Obispo, then it goes over into Pyramid Lake to LA, but there's not anything being diverted for agriculture. All of that land on the side, uh, east of I-5, as you go from the Bay Area to LA, is going to go revert back to ro row crop, whether that's cotton or wheat. And that would mean that each year, if there's not water, then they won't plant. This problem now is that if there's not water, they lose $20,000 an acre in investment. The trees will die. And I think they're gonna, if you go by there, in certain places, you'll see whole blocks of almonds. They're either dead or they're being ground up and then removed. Yep. Or there'll be orchards where they'll say, you know what, this is the most productive part of the, I'll put all my water over here and cut off over there. All in all, I think we're headed to, I think a historic correction in the midterms in November. And it'll be interesting to see what, I'm not sure Trump is gonna run again. I think he's worried about his age. I think he's worried about health issues. I think uh, he's gonna wait and put his uh, finger in the wind and see how things are. but. It's there's something out there. I can't quite put my finger on. It's not anti-Trump. It's just thank you, Trump, for refashioning the Republican Party in a more inclusive fashion with issues that matter. But maybe we can have somebody younger without the chaos. I think that's the message. Everybody, I think, supports the idea of helping Ukraine. But there is a golden mean there when you're just eliminating debate, basically, and rushing through $40 billion. And you have people like Colonel Vindman talking about offensive uh, operations inside Russia. People are forgetting that this is the first land war in history in which a nuclear power is directly involved on, on the European continent. It's never happened before. And the idea that we have some zealots that want, you know, no-fly zones. So there's, there's going to be a, a situation where at some point the Ukrainians, I think, because of they're, they're drawing on a billion-person NATO and it's, you know, a lot of resources and weaponry. And for some reason, thank God, the Russians are not hitting those supply lines as they come across the border. They're not able to or they're not doing it. But as Ukraine gets small, uh, stronger and stronger, and there's internal divisions inside Russia that I think are going to start to appear, they're going to have an existential question about these border, predominantly Russian-speaking borderlands that were illegally acquired by Putin. They'll probably at some point be able to, to do, make some pretty good progress. And then they're going to have a problem. And that is they keep going across the border and saying, God did this or something and attack Russia. And how, and if you've got a, a nuclear power involved in a land war controlled by somebody who is pretty ill, and you're conducting operations to limit his aggression, but inside Russian territory, and you're doing it through U.S. intelligence, and you have people in the U.S. intelligence community that are leaking, that they're bragging about taking out and assassinating generals, then you're, sit you're getting to a situation in which 
you're really upping the ante. We've never been in that situation before. I and mean, nobody, I don't care who they are, knows what the consequences of that is going to be. Finally, in an hour-long interview with Peter Zihan, Peter was asked what he thought about Ray Dalio's new book on the changing world order. I would say that in Dalio's first big interview on his book, he showed his cards. He said one of the reasons he's so impressed by China is because he's put most of his money there. And that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. Ouch. There goes our dream of seeing a Ray Dalio versus Peter Zihan debate anytime soon. He covered a lot of the same old territory, but the best bits were him drilling into details about the supply chains of green tech, the iPhone, and why the US Navy is still the most powerful. Think about what makes a modern iPhone possible. You have copper from Chile. You've got wiring that's done in Malaysia. You've got computer chips that are designed in the United States and fabricated in Taiwan. You have a case that's probably made in China. You have a camera system from Japan and so on and so on. The economy of the whole, of the entire single global network, enables countries at different labor points, at different price points, at different skill sets to all collaborate on a single supply chain to make an end product. And whenever you break a system apart into so many different constituent pieces, each individual step of that process is able to maximize their economic utility and performance. Those economies of scale, that geography of success is one of the whole. But if you start breaking that down for reasons cultural or moral or economic or trade or labor, you have access to fewer and fewer places to manufacture those inputs. So if, for example, the United States was just to pull up the drawbridge and go home, a lot of the electronics manufacturing that happens in East and Southeast Asia would no longer be accessible. We would have to rebuild that ourselves. And the same goes the other direction. If the Chinese, for various reasons, like, say, COVID lockdowns, falls out of the network, that would all need to be relocated. And when you have fewer producers in fewer places, the costs of all those components go up, and the chances for supply mismatches, at least in the short run, explodes. But there are a number of parts of the world that have great wind potential and great solar potential. The problem is that that's not everywhere. That's only in a very small sliver of the Earth's surface, probably less than about, I mean, it depends on where you draw the line, but about 10% of the total. A lot of those zones are in places that people don't live. So think the central outback, think Central Asia, think um, North Africa. However, in the United States Southwest, roughly going from Los Angeles to, to Dallas-Fort Worth, that's one of the best solar zones in the world. And the American Great Plains are one of the best wind zones in the world. And there are sufficient population centers in or adjacent to those zones that the United States can reasonably use solar and wind for a significant percentage of its energy production without too many changes to the grid. But in most places, the closest major wind or solar... Okay, I just got a little off-topic question. I really just asking this for a friend. I mean, let's say you know a woman with beautiful breasts and she's beautiful inside and out. We're talking lovely person, lovely me uh, like she's a she's an Asian Khayal, she's a righteous woman, she's a good woman. She she's a kind woman, she's she's a loving woman. The the downside is that she's been she's been fairly generous with her favors to many of your friends. So would you be able to look past that and see her as a real treasure and, and feel proud to have her on your arm if, say, six of your friends had burned her? And I'm talking about a good, loving woman. It's just that she's been a little too loving, a little too generous with her favors. Uh, I don't know. It would, it would bother me. Like, I got one friend, anyway, he... He, uh, you know, he, he tells me he's particularly well endowed. And, like, I was completely infatuated with this woman. 
and to find out that he'd been there before me and, and that I was, you know, I, I was, I was plowing a furrow that he'd already excavated, like in much, you know, greater depth and, and width than, than I would. It, it, it kind of reduced my infatuation, but it, I haven't been such a saint. I haven't been, I haven't been stingy with my favors. Like I, I've spread my favors pretty far and wide. I've been very generous with with my love. I mean, I, I've I've allowed quite a large number of women to enjoy the, the genuine Luke Ford experience. Usually, I haven't even charged them for it. So, who am I to judge this woman? I mean, theoretical woman is like a woman that my friends wondering about. Is the like with beautiful breasts, like dresses well, like good, good moral character. Like the only downside is that she's been particularly generous with a lot of your friends in, in sharing of, of herself. And I, I don't know. I just, I wouldn't feel comfortable you know, g going to a shul where like half a dozen guys had burned my wife. I wouldn't feel great going to a party where, you know, there are three guys there who've all burned my wife. I mean, maybe I'm just revealing my insecurities. So for me, ideally, the number of men that my, my future wife will have been with is zero. Then uh, I'm not an unreasonable man. Like, I, I understand that let's say she's a 30-year-old woman that she's probably been with you know, one guy possibly two guys before me. But if we get into double figures, if she's boned half a dozen of my friends, I'm sorry, ladies. I'm a magnanimous guy. I'm a generous guy. I'm a big-hearted guy. I try to keep my eye on the prize. I think about what's most important. But if you bang half a dozen of my friends, it's just, I just don't think we're going to get married. Love is love, bro. Men like to plow the field first. You'd keep your distance. She will instruct you on how your bro did it. And yeah, maybe I can pick up tips for her. We are all Ukrainians now. I mean, would would this would this bother you, or or are you able to transcend that and just like it's her soul, right? It's her soul that that really really matters. You were revealing your age. They are having orgies in the house. What if you really loved a girl and say she'd only been with two guys in, in her life, but she'd been with those two guys at the same time? I mean, isn't that the, the movie Chasing Amy? That would bother me. Like, let's say, you know, I meet this wonderful woman. She's got a, a PhD in philosophy. She dresses well. She's got a nice figure comes from a good family. She's only been with two guys in her life, but she was with those two guys at the same time. That would skeeve me out. Like, I don't know. I don't want to... I don't know about you. I don't want to marry double penetration nation. And, like, I am the Charles Krauthammer of double penetration. I'm the... I'm the Tucker Carlson of the, the lesbian gangbang. I'm the... Uh, the George Will of the blowjob compilation. But that was just work. That was just journalism. I, I couldn't actually imagine like having a relationship or, or marrying someone who'd 
participated in, in double penetration. I don't think I could ever like get that out of my head. And let's say, let's say great girl, wonderful girl, good family, but she'd had jungle fever. She'd like to take a, you know, walk on the wild side. I mean, I don't see race personally. I, I don't notice color, but I mean, you're probably a racist. Like, would that bother you if she dated, you know, three black guys? I mean, it wouldn't bother me. I'd be proud that I, I knew that my girl wouldn't be racist. But the, the liberal Jewish women I knew, they'd often dated black felons. And they said they'd rather date a felon than date a Republican. And so they didn't understand how they were dating me, and they just they just uh, attributed it to their depression. They figured, you know, I'm kind of hitting rock bottom. You know, I must be really depressed if I'm ending up with, with 40. Yeah, I, I judge people by the content of their character. Do I want to marry her for love or not? Well, I, I want... Love is just... A, a component of marriage. I'd want to marry someone who's compatible with the Orthodox Jewish way of life. I'm not going to marry someone who's not compatible with that. Look, how about a Spencer Watch podcast series? I better catch on. Yeah, I'll listen to Richard Spencer so you don't have to. Don't let your dick run your life. Be a man. Stand tall. Didn't I work in a certain industry? If you make them fall in love with you, you did it to yourself. Forty goes on these vague, irrelevant hypotheticals. The viewers await the audio commentary to Apricot Sky, the first Ford coffee, wondering what Ford thought of the forbidden seventh-day taste. Oh, the romance of these harbor towns, lights that shimmer on canals and in the bottom of your glass, Joe Jackson. Okay, let's get back to Mother Hunger. And so one of the signs of mother hunger is you have insecure attachments. So that's kind of bothered me most of my life. I've had insecure attachments. So there are three patterns of insecure attachment. There are those who are avoidant. So I've had some of that, but I don't think that's primarily characterized me. These are people who have a dismissive attitude, shun intimacy, have difficulties reaching for others in times of need. So I've got, I don't know, maybe 20% that ambivalent. People with an ambivalent attachment pattern are anxious and preoccupied. They are viewed as clingy or needy because they require constant validation and reassurance. So I would say that 70% of my insecure attachment pattern is ambivalent. Then disorganized. People with a disorganized attachment style uh, have no real coping strategies, unable to deal with the world. That's not so much me. So signs of disorganized attachment include depression and anxiety. I've certainly struggled with these. Frequent outbursts and erratic behavior coming from an inability to clearly see and understand the world around them or properly process the behavior of others or relationships. Yeah, I've certainly had that. Poor self-image and self-hatred. That has uh, dominated my life until probably five years ago. And the perpetuation of uh, seeking trauma in relationships. So I would not tend to bond with healthy women, because obviously healthy women were going to bond with me. But people with an insecure attachment style have trouble making emotional connections with others. They can be aggressive or unpredictable. So no one has to be a victim of their past. We can develop our attachment style. 
And the strategy for creating an earned secure adult attachment style means reconciling childhood experiences and making sense of the impact of your past and how that has shaped you in the present and for the future. So this is from verywellmind.com. So to earn security, you have to develop a coherent narrative about what happened to you as a child. You need to explore the impact that has had on the decisions you have made unconsciously. And you need to let go of hating yourself for your addictions and compulsions and consistent self-defeating behavior. So you have to break your patterns of dysfunction. Why do things get so out of hand? So earning a secure attachment takes time. Healthy relationship is one where partners are mutually caring, supportive, respectful, and loving toward another. For people like myself with insecure attachment patterns, these characteristics can help shift them away from feeling negative about themselves. So yeah, when I bond with someone who's secure, that tends to have a calming effect on my central nervous system. If I bond with someone who's insecure or avoidant, that tends to drive me crazy. So avoidance are just the worst for me. They just make me incredibly anxious. Another thing that I struggle with is fear of abandonment. So people with fear of abandonment tend to attach too quickly, frequently to unavailable partners or relationships. They fail to fully commit. They have very few long-term relationships. I've never had a relationship longer than a year. They move on quickly just to ensure they don't get too attached. They are overly eager to please. They engage in unwanted sex. They stay in relationships no matter how unhealthy they are. They struggle with being hard to please and nitpicky. They have difficulty experiencing emotional intimacy. They feel insecure and unworthy of love. They find it hard to trust people. They are jealous of everyone they meet. Experience intense feelings of separation, anxiety. I've been jealous of... I've been way too jealous. That's just embarrassing. I mean, the, the, the types of things I get jealous about, just really pathetic. It's really... You just... You'd think less of me, just... You know, how could I, I feel jealous of, of, of this or that? Ugh. People with fear of abandonment tend to have general anxiety and depression. They tend to overthink things and work hard to figure out hidden meanings. Yes, that's been me. They're hypersensitive to criticism. They contain repressed anger and control issues, and they engage in self-blame frequently. So people with fear of abandonment... They do well in the honeymoon phase of relationships. So I've I've enjoyed that rocket, the, the honeymoon phase of relationships. And uh, overlook uh, possible red or yellow flags. But the honeymoon phase doesn't last forever. When real life intervenes, then I start to get anxious. I feel slights. I get moody. I overreact. I can become clingy and demanding. I can keep throwing tests before the person that I'm trying to form a relationship with. I'm insisting that they, you know, prove their love to me by jumping through various hoops, such as, hey, you've got to come to synagogue with me. Or I just run away, rejecting my partners before they reject me. Or I feel that whatever slight is going on is my fault, and I'll try to transform myself into the perfect partner to keep the other person from leaving. So when the fear of abandonment is mild, well control, you may well be able to handle it by simply becoming educated about your tendencies. Most people, though, the fear of abandonment is rooted in deep-seated issues that are difficult to unravel alone. I remember in therapy, I'd often say to the therapist, oh, you know, I just wish there was like one easy trick that I can do that, uh, you know, would, would help my life just take off. 
like what was what was that plane that that took off in paris and then then crashed five miles later that was like the supersonic plane that, that came out in the 70s and then they discontinued it about 10 years ago but i just wanted that one easy trick and my therapist would encourage me to go for the deep the deeper slow change the people with the fear of abandonment state they never felt like they had a tribe when they were growing up so people with fear of abandonment may very well be attracted to orthodox judaism or a cult or some way of getting connected to a tribe it's important to surround yourself with other like-minded individuals like i'm doing right now make a list of your current hobbies passions and dreams find others who share your interests not everyone who shares your interests will become a close friend but sharing hobbies and dreams are excellent stepping stones toward building a solid support network working on your passions helps you to build self-confidence and the belief that you are strong enough to cope with whatever life throws you away solar zones is a continent away so the europeans would have to go into the sahara the chinese would have to go into the outback and that's just not feasible with today's technology there's also the same problem of the whole versus the problem of the many when you look at the components that are necessary to make these systems work. We understand the agony of oil supply chains. You have to deal with Venezuela and Iran and Iraq and Russia. But if you want to go into wind and solar in a big way, you need to replace the oil supply chain with the supply chain in order to make the turbines and the panels. And that means you need Canada and Mexico and Brazil and Chile and Bolivia and Argentina and Italy and Romania and China and Australia and Malaysia and Indonesia and Sri Lanka and Kenya and Ethiopia and South Africa and, oh, yes, still Russia. The complexity of the supply chains to build out today's green tech is an order of magnitude more complex than what exists for oil. So we're in this weird situation where- Yes, I was hoping that my love life would take off like the Concord. We're moving away from the globalized system and we'd like to have energy self-sufficiency. And by we, I mean every individual country, but it can't be done without the global system. And in the short term, we know we can't have globally available, inexpensive fossil fuel energy without Russia. But looking forward, we also can't do the green transition without Russia. What's the other side of the coin of globalization? When we made the world safe for civilian maritime traffic, any country that wanted to play could play in any way that they wanted to. And so countries wouldn't have to simply follow the same template. Before globalization, if you wanted your population to have food, you had to grow it yourself. If you wanted to have a manufacturing system, you had to do it yourself. And you had to protect it and not integrate with potential rivals or even countries that were friendly. Because if there was a conflict, even if you weren't involved, you could see your entire supply system break down and that would be catastrophic. Globalization did away with that lack of network, and we finally got to a situation where any country could play in any way. One of the reasons why ships are getting bigger is because at the height of globalization, it was all about efficiency. So every time you roughly double the size of a ship, its fuel needs, its operational costs per unit of items to be transferred drops by roughly 20%. So if you double, 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 and eventually get to one of those super container ships that can handle 30,000 containers at the same time, your per unit operating cost is going to be less than a quarter of what it was for the smaller ships. Also, bigger ships can hold more fuel. They can sail further. Well, that only works if you have the economies of scale, both in production and consumption to justify ships of that size. And we have had that until recently. But now as we break down the system, having large, slow-moving vessels no longer makes sense for systems where we're going to have more co-location between production and consumption. 
And if you go from larger ships to smaller ships, they're not going to have the range. So everything that is inhibiting manufacturing or mass production or safety on the seas is going to force ships to get smaller and faster and not sail as far. And that alone is enough to break global economies of scale. The U.S. Navy of the day is designed for the high globalization era. It's not so much that we've got fewer ships. Okay, I think... I think, uh... I think we're approaching the end. I think we've identified our mother hunger and, and just getting a name for something that, that ails you, right? Yeah, you're halfway there to healing. There's time, time, time to turn, turn, turn around. Turn. Turn. Turn, turn, turn I'm going to look back on my first cup of coffee. When I was 27 years of age. Not till this movie did I ever have a cup of coffee. I turned my back on my seventh day Adventist upbringing. There we are at the back of my 1977 Datsun station wagon. Apricot Sky, not just a movie, it's a movement. Let's wait for the director's cut. In HD. Just imagine what this would look like in HD. I mean, just, just smack you around. Man, I was very generous with my favors in the back of that Dustin station wagon. I had towels up so I could, like, cover all the windows. Like, I, I took all sorts of steps and precautions to ensure the ladies peace and comfort there I am with my first cups of coffee is Jerry Swift in? okay that will do it bye bye